Hi, everyone. I'm Jessica Minhas, and welcome to All Go First. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting you on your journey of mental health, hope, healing, and freedom. On today's episode, I'm joined by one of my best friends, Jennifer Herring. We've been friends since middle school. She is a really passionate childhood sexual trauma and abuse survivor and advocate. I know those words can be really hard to talk about, but she's coming on the show to talk about her own journey and what it means to heal and what it means to really pursue your purpose in light of a journey like this. I am so honored to have her on the show. And just as a heads up for listeners, please, we're going to be talking about some really hard stuff. So please, if you hear something that makes you feel uncomfortable, please, you know, definitely don't feel obligated to keep listening. We'll have resources at the end of the episode for you too, if you do feel triggered or if you'd love to help a loved one in your life out as well. Let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Algo First. I am joined by my actual best friend. I say anytime we have an episode, I'm always like, oh, I'm joined by a dear friend. But Jennifer is actually a, like a sister to me. We've known each other since a very fateful time in eighth grade. She is a very powerful, very outspoken sexual abuse and child sexual abuse survivor and advocate. I really respect her story and how generous she is with sharing it with everyone. She is truly an inspirational woman, but what it makes her so unique is the fact that you're so open with your journey and you have so much wisdom to offer so many people and you offer it so freely. So I wanted to hear from your perspective, because I love this story. How did we meet? Jennifer Heron, how did we meet? So are we telling the real, first of all, that's super generous words. So I appreciate that. Are we sharing the real, is this like an open, I can share how we met? Yeah. Perfect. I have no shame. So we met at a summer camp at school. We'd probably crossed paths a few times before that, but I remember sitting on the bleachers. People were playing volleyball, I think. And um, I had gym shorts on and my mother... And we were in eighth grade? Eighth grade. Yeah. Yeah. And my mother had not allowed me to start shaving my legs yet. And so uh, I have been endowed with very dark hair, very light skin, very dark hair. You lucky girl. Oh, in some ways, maybe. In this way, maybe not so much. So... It was something I was very conscious of anyways, how dark the hair on my legs were and um, or was. And I remember you came and sat down next to me and just literally the first thing out of your mouth, which is something that I have just completely been enamored with you about since day one is you just like do not – there's no holds barred. And so you walked up to me, sat down and said – oh, you don't shave your legs either? That's awesome. Look. And you like hiked up your shorts and like Vanna White style (laughs) showed me that you also had hair on your legs. And I was in the first two seconds mortified and in the next 30 seconds just like immediately in love with you. I was like, yes, this is a friendship in the works. What's what's also really kind of neat about our friendship is that I actually had identical twin sister named yes. Jennifer. And yeah. over the journey of our lives, we have become so close. And so in it's some crazy. ways, we have kind of bonded in that way. And I consider you a sister. Uh, same. Absolutely. Same. So we find ourselves here in New York City. It's been a few years since yeah. eighth grade. I am 36, so let me do math. 
I'm, I'm, I say I'm 36 a lot on the podcast because I'm trying to remind myself that that's okay. And I know it's okay. But it's totally you know, okay. There's a lot of conversation around your mid-30s and how that can be scary, but I'm trying to embrace it. And I think it's amazing, you know, getting sick, overcoming all the stuff we've yeah. overcome. You know, yes. so each year is a blessing. Anyway, that's my internal dialogue. <laughs> so we have known each other a long time, like 20-something a years. A long time. And you yeah. just recently moved to New York City. Thank, thank the Lord. I have Finally. been trying to convince you for the for years and years and years to you do this. You fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. But let's take it all the way back. And, you know, you are, like I said, you speak a lot about your story yeah. online and in, in person with people. What is your story? Yeah. So... I am fortunate that I've I've been able to share my story to the point where I kind of have been able to like nutshell it. So nutshell version of my story is that my mom married a man when I was five years old. So he became my stepfather. I've never met my biological father. So he, for all intents and purposes, became the father figure in my life. And from the age of five until um, I was 16, he was the man who raised me, was married to my mother. We had a family unit of three children and the two of them. And from the outside looking in, our family was pretty, you know, pretty normal, middle class, <laughs> uh, middle America family. So uh, that being said, when I was six, so about a year into their marriage, was the first time that my stepfather attempted um, such sexual contact with me. And that first time around was uh, late at night. I resisted him to the point where he finally kind of left the room and left me alone. And then I immediately told my mom the next day. And the story that transpired after that was that he explained to my mom that he had been out drinking with some friends and, you know, just wasn't like fully sober in his thoughts and um, thought he had been going into their bedroom that night before. And thought he had been going into yeah an adult person's bedroom. Right. So yeah. um, definitely not, you know, in hindsight, looking back, definitely not a believable story from my perspective, but at the time it seemed like a rational thing I for guess, a six-year-old. Well, yeah. So to my mom, and then to me as a six-year-old, it was kind of presented. I don't to know me. how it could be rational to an adult, but yeah, crazy. But you know, I mean, in so in reality, one thing that I always try to keep in in perspective is that I can be accountable for my perception of things. I can't be accountable yeah. for other people's. You're perception. right. You're totally right. And I'm jumping the gun here because I know that stuff gets so complicated yeah. in families. Yeah, it does. And at the time, you know, six years old, I was sat down after the fact, and even when I had gone to my mom, I kind of went to her matter of factly. I wasn't even necessarily feeling a lot of upset feelings more so than I know what happened was wrong, and so I need to tell an adult because these things were wrong and this is yeah. what happened. So then it was explained to me that everything was a misunderstanding and my uh, stepfather was very apologetic and tearful and just like, you know, I love you and I'm so sorry and never it will never happen again. And and that was kind of that. And then a couple of years went by and there was no, there were no other incidents in the immediate future after that. And then around the time I was eight or nine years old is when the uh, grooming began towards him 
developing a sexual relationship with me. What is grooming? Because we hear that word a lot. We've talked a little bit about it on the past podcast before with another guest, but I know it looks differently for everyone. Yeah, for sure. And it's not something that really gets put on the table. I know particularly when we talk about good touch, bad touch in schools, and even as adults, when we talk about manipulation and perpetration, grooming does not really get to the table I think a lot of times because it's not yet admissible as a mm. part of the narrative in court. Right. It yeah. can't be included as evidence because it is so ambiguous. But for yeah. you, in your language, in your experience, yeah. what did grooming look like and what would you refer to it as now? Yeah. So specifically in my story, what grooming looked like was our relationship developed from my stepfather telling me all the time I was I guess from a like superficial level I was a an attractive child you know I was a child that got a lot of attention for my physical attributes when I was young from everybody from strangers wherever we were you know it was pretty normal for people to stop my parents and say oh your little girl is so pretty or whatever so with that being said my stepfather began really harping on that around the time I was eight years old and really himself saying to me all the time, wow, you're so pretty. I can't stop looking at you. You make it so hard for me not to want to sit with you or stare at you or making statements like that that just really focused in on my physical appearance as being something attractive to him. And then that developed from there. It went on to more simple physical touches that were still inappropriate, but not something that could be uh, things that could be easily misconstrued as you know just fatherly affection so and you're and you're how old at this point about eight when this started so I remember specifically the summer the summer that I was eight years old he started we started having these morning interactions where he would have me come in our family room with him and have like a morning television hangout you know time and again this could be something that would be an innocent thing between a father daughter in a relationship like hey let's sit down together and just have some you know father daughter time on the couch watching you know tuesday morning game shows for me it looked a little different he would have me sit on his lap i started feeling sensations of his erections and things like this that at the time at 8 years old i had no idea what that was but i I remember feeling very specific negative responses internally mm-hmm. to what I was experiencing in my environment. So yeah, so you had a sense, even though you were young, you yeah. had a sense of kind of that this was wrong. Right. Absolutely. But couldn't put my finger on it enough to say this is wrong. So that that was the beginning for me. He also would do small things like pinching my butt. And you know, as an adult now, I look at things that parents do with children or even relatives do with children that they see as being very innocent. And from their perspective, it might be done from a place of innocence. But for the child, I think as a young child, even when my stepdad would, you know, pinch my butt and say, oh, you have such a cute little booty, you know, for instance, this is something that I hear adults say to young children all the time. And it, my experience with that has given me a much different perspective on how damaging and traumatizing and also how it can really change for a child what they perceive to be healthy expectations around relationships with adults or with people of the opposite sex. We, we, I think we tend to force children to be forgiving of adults' behavior, even when it puts them in a compromising position. Oh, and I heard something recently about the narrative around telling your child 
aren't you going to give me a hug or don't forget to give yeah this person a kiss on the cheek yeah this is a big deal which is interesting to think about how these narratives go together and how they don't go together and how murky it gets and how complicated right so this is happening in your house you're about 10 years old the grooming is starting to escalate a little bit what's happening in the relationship with the adults in the house is there anything changing or is it you know it's this is a this is a conversation that I've had with my mother over the years just kind of trying to dissect this were there any was there anything from her end that she perceived to be different in their relationship or thinking about did I do I remember seeing anything shift in their relationship and really my parents had a very my stepdad and my mom had a very loving relationship outwardly they had date night every Wednesday night pretty much my entire life they you know acted as most normal, healthy married couples do. There was light displays of affection between the two of them our whole lives. You know, we would see them hug or kiss in a very normal, light way, nothing too intense, but also it's not like we didn't see any displays of affection in our house. So it seemed normal. Yeah. There was, there was no indication if anyone were to come to visit our, our home. I I don't know that there would be any indicators, obvious indicators, aside from as I got older, myself feeling more withdrawn and even to the point of, you know, friends and relatives expressing a little bit of discomfort over my resistance to his affection. So what others would perceive as normal levels of affection from him if he were to say, as you mentioned a minute ago, for instance, Jennifer, come here, come sit next to me, let me put my arm around you. The older I got, the more resistant I was to that because of the dynamic happening behind closed doors with the two of us. And so when I would be resistant to that, I felt like the only time I could resist him was in a public setting or in the presence of others, you know. So by the time we met when we were in eighth grade, that fateful day. That fateful day. With our hairy legs. uh, (laughs) you The abuse had sort of really started to tip over. Yes. Yes. At that point – I, I think by that age, it was there was a pretty solid routine of sexual misconduct happening pretty much on a daily basis between the two of us. So as I got older, what that would look like is him coming into my room, locking the bedroom door, forcing me to uh, get undressed. Uh, his His avenue of choice was to start with massages and and then that progressed into uh, forced touching of, you know, genital areas and and then from there it progressed for for us there was not um that really became a constant in my life from the time I was probably in about seventh grade until my sophomore year of high school when things you know got to a a tipping point I think as your friend hearing this across the table from you Hmm. I honestly knew that there was a lot of physical abuse but I don't think I understood that there was the gravity of the mm. abuse, yeah. I think, is just starting to hit me Yeah, now. It's, you know, it's funny because I think that there's, at different stages in my adult life, being separated, being removed from that experience in front of me, there's times when I look back on it and definitely struggle with the thought of, man, my experience wasn't as bad as so many others who I've spoken to, you know? There's right. that imposter syndrome, that that feeling of I shouldn't be in the room of sexual right. abuse yeah. survival, you know, Yeah, because there were things that didn't happen between us. And I've heard horrific stories of uh, very violent 
sexual abuse of very young children and even people through the same stages of life that I was going through that experienced a lot more violence in the sexual abuse that they endured than I did. Yeah. And then there's other moments in my life where I look back and a lot of times it's around when I'm going into detail with my story as we're doing right now that I do I do recognize and I'm grateful that I've come to a place where more often I'm able to recognize, no, everyone's story is different and I'm grateful that I didn't have to endure the level of violence that some others have, but it doesn't mean that – it doesn't take anything away from the – the fact that I should never have had to endure the emotional and physical effects of that man's wrong decisions on how he treated me. So, you know, that's that's difficult. I think it's it's hard for all of us survivors of trauma in general to not compare ourselves to others. Totally. Um, but then at the same time, I think it's so important to recognize that it's okay to feel, you know, terrible about what you've endured at any point on that spectrum. I think it's so hard when it is so emotionally tied together because yeah. when it's not violent, it feels more directly wrong. Yes. It's easy to look at the scars. It's hard to watch and witness, but it's yeah. easy to see that it's wrong when right. it's this gradual grooming and yeah. it, momentum, the slow momentum. It gets so weaved into the house way like just the way you go you go home and this is what's happening yes, yes. as it progressed into this real physical molestation what was going on between you and your mom was there any conversation around it that's a great question so i think at the point where i i once i reached an age and i don't know that there was a specific day that this happened but between my stepfather and I, once I reached a certain age where I fully recognized that his behavior towards me was 100% inappropriate. So once that became a realization for me, because at first, of course, again, with grooming, you don't – it's kind of like boiling, you know, boiling a lobster alive. You know, they don't – you start the water cool and then it gradually gets warmer until all of a sudden it's boiling hot. Yeah. So I didn't recognize his behavior. I felt uncomfortable at first, but I didn't recognize it as – black and white wrong. And then at the point where I realized that his behavior was wrong, then what happened was, as I mentioned, the relationship between my mother and stepfather, even for me looking at them, I felt like they had a very healthy relationship. My mom was happy with him. Our family was doing well as a whole unit, as a family unit. And so in my mind, what I adopted as truth in my young mind is that if I were, and this was in part due to his grooming and manipulation as well. And he would plant these seeds into my thoughts of if if my mom were to ever find out what I was doing with him, right? Because mm -hmm. there's that, this is on you, right? I'm not doing this to you. We're doing this that together. Triangulation. Absolutely. And so if, if your mom ever found out that we have this special relationship, wow. it would devastate her. That's so insidious. And it would ruin our family. That's so evil. You know, right. So – I, I decided very early on that while I wasn't okay with what he was doing, I also uh, had a great – I had a very close relationship with my mother. I was her first child. We were very close my entire life. And so I wanted nothing more to than to protect her, her happiness and my brother's happiness. I didn't want them, any of them, to endure the devastation of learning of this horrible situation or what would come next, which in my mind would mean – 
our family breaking up, the two of them divorcing, my mother and my two brothers and I having to do life on our own now. So these things were something from a very early age that I took responsibility for and said, we, I even had conversations with my stepfather where I would say, as long as it doesn't go past X point, yeah, this behavior, then I won't tell mom. So you like, in my mind, I was controlling the situation, which was not reality, but in a young child's mind, this is what I thought yeah, I had course. to do, you know? I remember in school, I don't remember exactly how, but I had a sense of what was going on. And I wish I could remember if we talked about it explicitly. I definitely remember feeling very uncomfortable anytime I was at your house mm. and mm. really wanting to stay the night at your house a lot because I felt like I could sure. be protective but also just really scared of your stepfather. Yeah. I think I had a little sense of it. I want to say maybe we talked about there was like some kissing or something. Yeah. But then you have, were doing amazing in school. Mm-hmm. And and then what happened? Yeah. So school was, you know, a reprieve for me for for years. And doing well in school meant that I had the opportunity to control that environment and to have positive relationships with adults in that environment, which was very important to me. And so through elementary, middle school, and then into high school, I was always top of my class. I was, you know, even up until after freshman year of high school, heading into sophomore year, I was third in my class. And so, you know, that was for me so important. But then my sophomore year is when a lot of things shifted. So during the sexual abuse that I experienced for many years with my stepfather, there was no physical abuse correlated with that. And what I mean by that is he wasn't hitting me or you know, cause, inflicting physical pain on me. And then my sophomore year of high school, that shifted. And so then his um, he became aggressive and angry towards me, which so I had not. So it was still physical abuse in that it was still yes. physical contact. Correct. But it but became violent and aggressive violent. physical abuse. Right. So the sexual abuse was not violent and aggressive. But then on top of what was happening there, my sophomore year, I think what happened was my stepfather started recognizing my lean towards talking to other boys and there was a weird dynamic like you know what felt weird to me at the time but now I understand it to be part of his sickness is that he became jealous of my affection or attention towards other people of the opposite sex and so when he started recognizing that you know there were times he would come into my room and start an argument with me and then that would escalate into him physically hitting me punching me kicking me so real like bruising yes yes it it became very violent and um it was only with me not my brothers and once that started that's when my mother started recognizing something was off and Did she, she see the bruising so most of the time when he would hit me it was crazy enough it was on my it was punching me in my head. So while yes, there was bruising, there wasn't like physical um, from somebody else's perspective looking at me, like I would have knots on my head, but of course your hair yeah. covers that up. I vaguely um, remember this. He was he was a very calculated person in general. And so I think there was a lot of- It just sounds so terrifying because he's so, yeah, yeah. calculated is yeah. a great way to say it. Yeah. You hear this with so many people, right? Is that 
if there were ever bruises inflicted upon me, it was always in my midsection. I do remember those. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, because I would spend a lot of time at your house and I think you were probably the first person, the first friend, non-adult that I shared about what was happening to me. And so once that once that abuse started happening, happening, which was new for me, right? That was not something that had previously been part of my journey. So once that started, I think it really created a new, a new pattern of behavior for me, where I felt a desperation to get out of that situation. I, I it, it was the tipping point for me to recognize that I, where I thought I was in control up until then, all of a sudden I knew that I was not controlling what was going on. What I think is remarkable about your story is even as a six-year-old, then as a 10, a 12-year-old, a 15-year-old, now you're a sophomore in high school, you still had a sense that this was wrong, that what was happening to you was wrong. I think sometimes when I hear stories of abuse, I know that in my journey of child abuse, and I'm about to fall into that trap myself where I'm like, but it was never as bad as yours, Jen. I just can't even imagine what you went through. Um, but I, I felt that I was to blame, that I was, it somehow was my fault. What I'm hearing from you is that somehow there was enough of a seed somewhere in there for you that you knew it was wrong and that you were willing to self-advocate for yourself. And I think that's truly remarkable. And I'm just wanting to know, how did you know that? Yeah. You know, that's such a great question. And I'm, I feel so grateful because having heard so many others stories, it is something that I recognize to be a very difficult path to navigate self-advocacy and especially for children, young adults, teenagers. I think the understanding of your self-worth is being developed. And so if you ha- if you are being treated in such a way that there's a skew in your understanding of what self-worth is, then it's sometimes near impossible to recognize that you deserve to advocate for yourself or be advocated for and um, to be protected, um, that you deserve to protect yourself. Yeah, I mean, I just thought with my own journey and my own experience, I thought that I was bad and I definitely didn't deserve protection. Right. But you, when we talked before this interview about this interview, you had said that when you were 16, you dropped out of school. I did. But that was actually an act of self-care. Absolutely. And And I still think that is so remarkable. Can you kind of talk us through that for our listeners? Yeah, it's funny. Even as you say that, I feel myself taking a deep breath just because I think that this is is an area of self-realization that I I do still struggle with. There was so much of my worth, my self-identity wrapped up in doing well in school, having a plan for my future. I mean, of course, you're a teenager. Yeah. And a teenager who was really known for being book smart and being ambitious in my education. And so that was where my identity was. And none none of the other things happening in my life were known to anybody. So for me, after sharing my story with a couple of diff- – a few different adults over the course of about a year, starting from when I was 15 was the first time I decided to tell an adult what was happening. And I shared the full story. Do you remember um, who that adult was? It was actually my stepfather's sister, my my aunt. Okay. And so I had gone to spend the summer after my freshman year. I had gone to spend the summer with her and their children to nanny for them for the summer. And while I was there, we developed a really great relationship and had great morning conversations. And 
I don't know why I decided she was the person to trust, but I felt like she was somebody that would take me seriously and and hear me. And so I shared everything with her and we sat and we cried together and she even validated my my explanation of what was happening and shared some things about her brother's past, my stepfather's past, that it resonated with her that this would happen, although she was devastated. So she kind of expected it almost? Yeah, she she wasn't fully surprised, although of course it was devastating to hear, but she, you know, she was so apologetic to me and so compassionate towards me in the moment and and even promised, listen, I will take care of this. This won't So how did happening. you feel when you heard this? Must have been There was so much relief, but for me it was so short lived because it was a short couple of weeks later that I returned home. The day I arrived, I thought Okay, so at any day now, from that day forward, I kept thinking, any day now, she's going to either tell my mom or get the police involved or something, and then I'm I'm expecting there to be this big right. yeah, moment, course. you know, Absolutely. of redemption and, and retribution and the end to my trauma, and day by day by day, that didn't happen, and so where I had so much relief in, t- in sharing my story and having it well-received, what I thought was well-received – as time went by, it was probably only about a month of being back home before I realized, oh, this isn't a space she's going to step into on my behalf. And that was hard. And so then my next step was to go to an administrator at school. Mm-hmm. And I – which you were you were privy to that. You know, I remember having a conversation with you back then even. So I told this um, – I don't even remember her name, but she was a female administrator at school. And I was heading home that day. And I think I had skipped first period. <laughs> um, my sophomore year, I had started skipping classes a little bit, which was very uncharacteristic of me. And she had come to me and said, Jennifer, I have to call your parents and tell them that you had you missed a class today. And I begged her not to because at that point, my father had started becoming violent um, with me. And so I was afraid of what the repercussions would be for my missing uh, class. And so I just kind of blurted out to her, this is what he's doing to me. This is a terrible situation I'm living in at home. And and please don't call and tell them that I skipped class because there will be very bad consequences for me. I didn't hold anything back in sharing my story with her. And I remember blurting it all out and thinking she's going to be so shocked and she won't she won't let me go home because nobody, no adult would be able to hear this and allow a child to go home yeah. to that. And instead, it was it was right after school. We were at the bus line. And instead, she literally escorted me onto the bus and said, you need to go home and face this. And, um, That's horrible. And so there was an it's obvious like – nauseating. Yeah. It was just known to me that there was not – there was a lack of trust or belief there. There was one time – I think it was the same school administrator that I went to once I knew about it. Yeah. I don't know if it was this instant, but I remember going to her and telling her that this was happening at your house to the extent that I knew about it. That, And she said to me that you needed to go in and tell her. And I don't remember what the order is. Yeah. But I remember asking you that you needed to say something. So it may have been after. It could have been, I think. Because maybe yeah. that's when you were like, why bother going in when I've right. already done that? Right. There was another instance that I do want to cover because we've covered the um, telling the family member because right. when, you know, there's that narrative with, the, with you know, domestic violence, why I stayed. There was that hashtag why I stayed yeah. for a really long time. Yeah. And I think that's really also applicable to households where there's child abuse happening. Yes. You know, why does the definitely. kid stay? But you kind of covered all the bases in terms of like, if you see something, say something. You right. You said something to the school. You said something to the family. Right. You also said something to a family friend. 
yes. to a friend of ours. I mean, you yes. said something to me. I was in an abusive well, you house were also in a as very well, and I tried to tell my. I mean, I was hopeless to tell the family I was living it's, with because we bonded over. We were both living in really abusive household situations, and we didn't have any options. Right, but you actually told a friend of I did ours, a grade school friend of ours. I did. You know, and it's funny because you think you you have this picture in your head. I think of, gosh, if anything were to ever happen terrible, and I were to share it with people that know me and care about me, of course they would come to my rescue, right? These are the things that go through our heads, I think, everybody. Yeah, totally. So when, And if my kid, if something ever happened to my yes, kid, they have great friends in their lives, they're yes, going to tell they're somebody. They're going to tell and it's going to be we'll handled. Find, yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll find exactly, out. Exactly. Absolutely. So even after so many failed attempts to get help, to seek help and have it be. And you kept going, which was remarkable. You kept asking. You know, I think I think that falls back to, as we mentioned before, just this I don't fully know why I was fortunate enough to have this understanding of my worth, but there was something in me that said, no, I I do deserve to not have to endure this forever. I, I don't I don't deserve to be treated the way I'm being treated, and nobody knows that I'm being treated this way. So I know that if people just knew that I was being treated this way, they would stop this behavior. And even though along the way everyone kept not stopping it, I don't know. I just, it was almost as though growing up, I was always the one that would like fight for the underdog. Like I was always standing up to bullies. If I saw someone being bullied, I was the one that would step in. So I think some part of this was, you know, my stepfather was the bully in my life to minimize, to minimize that situation greatly, but he was the bully in my life. And so I kept almost like from a, I was almost separated from myself. So from the outside looking in, I kept fighting for that girl that needed help as though it was someone else that I was watching endure something awful. Mm -hmm. And so after failed attempts at telling adults, one day my dad came in. This was one of the times where he left quite a few welts on my head. In fact, I did actually have quite a large bruise and welt on my forehead that time after he had hit me. My brother had for the first time seen him doing it. My brother was in my room when he came and attacked me this time. And so he was traumatized by watching this happen. And I was um, devastated and I had left the house right after run out of the house, I remember, and jumped on my bike and ridden down the street. And so I ended up calling from a payphone, calling a good friend, of, a mutual friend of ours yeah, and saying, can your, can your parents come pick me up? Here's where I am. This is what just happened. And they did. They came and picked me up and brought me back to their house and they asked me what happened and I told them and their decision and again, we said this in the very beginning, I, I, I know I can only be accountable for my response to things, but it's hard not to get frustrated with why would somebody react a certain way or not react a certain way. But their decision at the time, her parents, was to call my dad and say, this is what your daughter just told us. And of course, his response to that was, that's definitely not what happened. I'm so sorry that she's lying to you about this. I'll come get her. And so... They um, had him come get me. I didn't know this until he arrived, and they said, you need to go home um, with your dad. And Wow. And so the next day, that was the first time I think any like negative experience at school had happened for me in terms of yeah, um, yeah having to reap the negative energy that came from sharing that. And I think that was the first time I realized I can't keep just sharing this with just anybody. I'd started be to become very open with just, I'll tell you and I'll tell you and I'll tell you. And it's like you um, were throwing out lines of hope. Yeah. When was the moment that you were like, I have to leave 
yeah. come hell or high water, I have to get out of here. Yeah, I think because you just to set the scene too, you didn't even have a car. Like, I didn't. <laughs> you didn't self-emancipate yourself. I didn't. You I just didn't. straight up dropped out. Right. Correct. Because you had to. I right. Absolutely. So, in a moment, in an argument at home one day, shortly after what we just discussed, I was being told again. My dad had become very violent with me, and even with his language towards me. So I was being told just what a horrible person I was essentially. And uh, my mom was there and she was trying to keep the peace between the two of us, my stepfather and I. And I don't even remember what she said to me, but it triggered something in me that I said, there's no way she would try to restrain me in this argument if she knew what I was enduring. And all those ideas of protecting her kind of went out the window. And so I finally just came clean and said, this is what your husband has been doing for all these years. And of course, that became an ongoing conversation for about a week between me and her and between she and him. And the short version of that is just that after about a week of conversations, he admitted to his behavior but minimized the extent of what had happened and convinced my mom that he was very sorrowful for his struggle and his sickness. And he felt he knew that it was terrible what he had put me through and he wanted to get counseling and he wanted to make it better. And and so where I thought as soon as I let this be known that it was something that would be handled and I would be removed from the situation, that that wasn't the case. And there's a lot to unpack there. And there's a lot of questions, but also a lot of grace in understanding that it was a very confusing and also very heavy situation. And so at the end of it all, the short of it is that my mom came to me and said, you know, this is what I would like to see happen. We're going to get you in counseling and him in counseling, and you're going to work through this. And I told her, I'm confident now that what I really need at 16 years old, what I really need is to not be in the same environment with this man. I don't trust him. He's so much wisdom as a 16-year-old, but also as a 16-year-old who is going through so much abuse to have the wherewithal to realize that this is not an environment. Yeah. Yeah. I think for a um, child, I'm just trying to put that together. That's incredible. I think, and again, I think it was very existential. I think there was a part of me, even looking back at it, I always I always watch this story in my head as an outsider. And so it was very existential where I, f- I always felt removed from the situation and almost like I was, you know, the one sitting on my own shoulder saying, this is what y- needs to happen. And so I told her in no uncertain terms, it's either him or me. So if you're not ready for us as a family to leave him, then I'm going to remove myself from the situation. If you don't remove him from it, then I'll remove myself. And that's what happened. And it was within a short period of time, I think maybe two weeks from the time I told her what was going on to the time I moved out of my house. I moved in with a friend about 20 minutes from where our house was for a short time. And then I was on my own for a while. I dropped out of school immediately and got a job waitressing at a Denny's on the graveyard shift. And Denny's a graveyard near a university. Yeah. Is a really good place to make 
listen, money, actually, because all those kids money. are studying at night or they're going yes. out at night. So absolutely. I made great money. I made great friends. I'm grateful that I didn't fall into a pattern of negative self-destructive behavior because I think it could have easily gone that and direction. And you were so vulnerable. I mean, goodness, yes. we see so, you know, obviously I've worked in a lot of human rights efforts with sexual exploitation and the narrative that you're explaining, this is the narrative that right. we see that that makes right girls and boys so vulnerable Definitely. To, to perpetration. I have so many questions and mm. we'll definitely have to have you on. Um, there is actually a really amazing story that Jen and I have about this time where we were both getting abused in which we became a girl band and <sighs> took on these ultra egos. We did. As a British girl band. It's my favorite story of <laughs> and, our childhood. And this, this girl band lasted. This, yes. this lasted for four years. Yep. Started when... Actually, when Jen dropped out yeah. and like yep. we, we became these other people and it makes sense why we became these other Absolutely. people, but that lasted into our early 20s very accidentally and unexpectedly. So Amazing we'll definitely have story. to share that story <laughs> another time because it is truly, truly really amazing. It's really brilliant. It's really quite amazing, actually. I've really nailed that accent. I'm, I'm so proud of you. And I don't even know that I would know where to begin faking the British accent that I used to do so well. Well, now that I've met my biological family in the UK, I can now I can just say I have family That's in perfect. London. That's why I actually know it's because I pretended to be in a British band for four years. We were so legit. We were so legit. <laughs> Since we don't have that much time left. Yeah. And there is so much more ground to cover. Yeah. But what I think we're really focusing in on this conversation is that narrative of not being believed, yeah. but continuing to self-advocate. Yeah. And for those of for the for our listeners who might have had something like this in their story or yeah. unfortunately have a family member or a loved one or who maybe are bearing witness to something like this playing out right now. It doesn't yes. have to be child sexual abuse, but maybe you're witnessing domestic violence. Right. Or you're just starting to feel like there's like some grooming happening, how would you encourage them to be self-advocating? Yeah. So, and why? Because it's exhausting. You had it's so exhausting. You hit so many brick walls. Definitely. Why did you keep going? This is something I've been really chewing on for a, a little while now. We This door opened in my mind where I was asking myself this question, what, what's, what's the, how do you convince somebody that their story is worth fighting for, that their redemption is worth fighting for? I don't know what sparked that passion in me for self-advocacy. I, I don't know initially what created this fervent need to get myself removed at all costs from my situation. But I think on the other side of that, looking back, I can honestly say that as scary as it is, because there's not just a fear of not being believed, which is so real and so true and awful to not be believed in your story. There's not just that fear, though. There's a fear of repercussions Absolutely. from your perpetrator, from your whatever's creating this trauma in your life, right? There's a fear that if you share your story and then it's not believed and you're still in that situation, what repercussions are you going to have to face that could be even worse than what you're enduring now? Totally. And so here's, here's what I would love to encourage people in. And obviously, everyone's story is so different. And this, this, there's not a blanket situation that applies to everybody. But I think what's important to remember is that if you are brave enough to rely on someone else for even a moment, and you are brave enough to go and tell somebody, a teacher, a family member, a friend, this is what I'm experiencing, and I, and I think I need help getting out of this situation. 
if they don't feel the strength, because I want to be careful to give a lot of grace to people who don't understand how to help a situation like that. So if they don't have the strength or the resources to know how to help you, know that there are people whose life goal, you for example, (laughs) is to to provide resources for those in need. And so if if going to a friend or a teacher or a loved one isn't producing the results that you need, instead of being fearful of what else you might have to endure, know that one, your life is so valuable and that is not dependent on anything you do or don't do. That is just a truth. That is a solid truth that your life has value and meaning and purpose in it beyond your circumstances right now. And then in that, I would love to encourage people to, you know, we have this amazing access to information through the internet these days and through social sharing these days. And so I would love to encourage people to seek outside resources that aren't maybe necessarily a family member or teacher, sometimes going so close to home can feel scary. But if that feels too scary or not productive enough, then there's resources that are a little farther away from home, so to speak, that are a little less close to the situation. And I've discovered that sometimes going that route is so usually a lot more productive because you end up finding these people who are strangers to your situation, but still willing to fight for you and know how to fight for you in the right way. And that can be a game changer. And to even have the the strength to go in that direction. I think it's important to just to know that we are all given these gifts. Like I'm such a passionate pursuer of people's hearts and learning their stories. And I'm always amazed by how amazing people are. Humans, we all have these like gifts to shine light into the world. And so if you're being attacked in a way that makes you feel like you don't have much to give to the world, really your light is going to shine so much brighter even because of this horrible thing you've had to endure. And the other side of that situation can be so beautiful and so redemptive. And until you get there, it's hard to convince somebody that they're there. But I think that's why it's so important. There are people like you in the world and people who are willing to share their story, but then also walk alongside those who need that support. We can't lift ourselves up always. We need people to lift us up. And if you're a family member that, or a friend that sees or hears that something is happening, even if you don't have the resources or the wherewithal to handle it yourself, it's imperative to, again, reach out to all of these other outside resources that are made available to us that that can take over from where you don't know where to go next. But that's always the better option as opposed to just saying, I don't know what to do next, so I'm just going to sit on this. It's scary when you don't know what to do to help somebody, but we have to kind of set aside our own discomfort when it comes to pulling someone out of a destructive situation. It's not even like an option, I feel like. It's something that we are all – it's something that is required of us to not watch destruction happening and turn a blind eye to it. I hear so much hope in your story and so much hope in your spirit. And I'm Mm. so grateful for you as a friend, but also as someone who I know our listeners can look up to for inspiration and for light. And when I I think of you, and I've just been thinking about you while we're talking, the image that keeps coming to mind is like 
a lighthouse and mm. like a siren. So that's amazing. Thank you, Jen, ah, for coming. Thank you. You're such a blessing, and I so appreciate it. We'll definitely have to have you come back on because I know there's so much to dive into just about relationships too yeah. and what relationships look like. Yeah. After this kind of this kind of history. So, but thank you again. Yeah, thank so you. Much. I'm so grateful to be here and grateful for what you're doing. Thank you for doing this work. It's so important. I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.algofirst.com. We'll see you next time.